Uh, if you have your Bible or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. We are going to be in verses 63 through 23.5. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to bridge this unfortunate chapter break and go from 22.63 to 23.5 in our time together this morning as we move ever closer to the cross and to the conclusion of Luke's gospel. So we're getting into chapter 23, and it only has 24 chapters. So uh, only a year and a half left, something like that. Uh, no, I'm kidding. We'll be done shortly after Easter. Uh, but I hope this gospel has blessed you immensely as we've made our way through it. Um, 2263 through 23.5. If you got it, say, I got it. Of course, it'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. 23.1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Amen. This is God's word and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. I think most of us have been there, going to the mailbox at the end of the day, grabbing a pile of mostly nothingness, thumbing through the various ads and envelopes until one of them stops us dead in our tracks. It's from the city or county that you live in, and in bold letters, the dreaded word summons. You've been called to jury duty and you don't want to go. Who wants to go, right? On one hand, this sort of collective dread at being summoned to jury duty makes sense, right? We don't like being told to do stuff. We don't want to do things that we didn't plan to do. We don't like the inconvenience of changed routines. But you know, as I was thinking about this, on another hand, our dislike of jury duty summons doesn't make sense. Sitting in an air-conditioned room, judging people, while your lunch is paid for is like the Baptist dream, right? That's everything we love to do. But I think more confusing in our dislike of jury duty is the fact that we are collectively obsessed as a culture with true crime and courtroom drama. I mean, I've lived in parts of two centuries, and I could count about a dozen times there have been trials that captivated the country that were deemed the trial of the century, how many the trials of the century can you have, right? When I was a kid, O.J. Simpson trial, 
Bill Clinton impeachment trial both dominated the news cycle. You guys remember? For weeks at a time. You hardly heard any other news during those times. Americans were glued to their TVs to see the drama play out. And in fact, 150 million people tuned in to see the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial read. Before those, of course, you had big trials like the Menendez brothers. You guys remember that one? Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, Watergate, Nuremberg. More recently, Alex Murdoch, Depp versus Heard, George Zimmerman, and even Saddam Hussein. There's an obsession, right, seemingly in the human conscience with the drama of high-profile court cases. And sometimes the trials that grab our attention and captivate society do so because their outcome has some effect on us or the nation, right? We invest because the results matter to us. Maybe because we believe they will have some implications for our lives or because we believe the results will tell us something of our justice system. We like seeing trials play out. And even though, here's another irony, we hate jury duty, we act as jurors in our own living rooms and with friends and families in all of those cases. We know who's guilty, don't we? <laughs> or innocent, and we'll let you know. And although we can think of many, many, many trials throughout the decades or centuries that were important or high profile or had some effect on those watching, there is no trial in history as important, as unjust, and as necessary as the trial of Jesus. Nor is there a trial that confronts every person with a choice to make a verdict to render like that of Jesus. Walter Chandler was a lawyer and author of a book about the trial of Jesus. And he said this, these other trials, one and all, were tame and commonplace compared with the trial and crucifixion of the Galilean peasant, Jesus of Nazareth. These were earthly trials on earthly issues before earthly courts. The trial of the Nazarene was before the high tribunals of both heaven and earth, before the great Sanhedrin, whose judges were the master spirits of a divinely commissioned race, before the court of the Roman Empire that controlled the legal and political rights of men throughout the known world. So as we explore this trial over the course of the next two weeks, we're confronted with what those present were confronted with, and it's these questions. Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? We all must observe this case and act as jurors in some sense and render a verdict. Now, don't be mistaken. Who we say Jesus is does not alter the facts of his person. We do not get to decide who he is. We aren't being invited to create our own personal Jesus. We aren't being invited to create some sort of Franken-Jesus or Build-A-Bear Christ. Jesus is who he is, whether the Sanhedrin or Pilate or the world or you or I like it or not. However, we must all look and examine him. We have to look at him and confront him and determine in our hearts and minds exactly who he is because that is the singular most important question we will answer. Who we say he is will determine how we live, what we prioritize, and how we act. The trajectory of our lives and eternal destinies hinge on the identity of Jesus Christ. So even though we have, we have to break up the text, right, and, and consider only a few verses at a time over the course of many weeks, the fact is, if you look at your text, the, the final chapters of Luke happen like a whirlwind. From the Last Supper forward, 
It is nonstop for Jesus and the disciples. After Jesus' final warnings to his disciples about their coming distress, they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus stares down the barrel of God's wrath in the cup that lay before him. He exhorts his disciples to keep watch and pray that they may be faithful in the hours and days to come. And as Jesus is speaking, one from his inner circle leads the Sanhedrin and their soldiers to arrest him, betraying him with a kiss. The disciples want to defend Jesus with the sword. One cuts off a servant's ear. Jesus heals the man and tells the disciples to put the sword away. Then Jesus is seized. His disciples flee. Peter denies him, catches the Lord's eye, and flees himself and weeps bitterly. And this brings us directly to where we are this morning. Jesus is in custody of the Jewish officials at one of the high priest's houses for the first of many kangaroo courts, and they want him dead. As he is in custody, we're told, In 63 through 65, the men holding him began to mock him, beat him, spit on him, and blindfold him, playing a sort of cruel game where they strike him and tell him to prophesy who hit him, yet he remains silent. Now, we who are familiar with the story of Jesus' Passion Week, we know this piece of his treatment leading to the crucifixion, yes? Yet we typically don't press into it too much, do we? But we know it happened. But we know he was mocked and beaten. We know it was shameful treatment. Yet we breeze along past it to get to other things. But I want us to spend some time just considering this, okay? Who is Jesus? What have we established in our journey through Luke? That he is the second person of the Trinity who existed from eternity's past. That he is creator God who has condescended to take on flesh as a squalling baby in some backwater town in Palestine. That he has lived a perfect life. A life that saw him touching the untouchable, loving the unlovely, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, causing the lame to walk, cleaning the unclean, raising the dead, rebuking the storms, and casting out demons. He taught in their streets with authority. He then approaches the cross and stares God's wrath in the face. He is determined to drink every last drop of the wrath of God that sinful people have stored up, though he himself is innocent. He has been betrayed by his friend. He has been denied by another. He has been abandoned by the rest, and he's utterly alone here. Now, add to this staring down the barrel of the wrath of God and being betrayed and denied and being abandoned to being mocked, spat upon, called names, struck repeatedly. They blindfold him. They strike him. You're a prophet? Then prophesy who hit you. You're a prophet? Prove it. Who spit on you? And they strike him, and they strike him, and they spit on him, and they mock him. The king of glory, creator God, spotless lamb, mocked and scorned by those he created, allowing himself to be humiliated. Who would endure such things? And why? Do you see how low Jesus would stoop for your sake? Do you see how low Jesus would stoop for your sake? Spurgeon said, all other miracles put together are not equal to this miracle. This one rises above them all. And out miracles, all miracles, that God himself, having espoused our cause and assumed our nature, should condescend to stoop to such a depth of scorn as this. 
Though myriads of holy angels adored him, though they would have gladly left their estate in heaven to smite his foes and set him free, he voluntarily subjected himself to all the shame that I have described and much more, which is utterly indescribable. He said, oh, my brothers and sisters, you cannot imagine how low your Lord stooped on your account. When I hear any say that they have been so slandered for his sake that they cannot endure it, I have wished that they knew what he endured on their account. If we stood in the pillory and all mankind hooted at us for a million, million years, it would be as nothing compared to the wondrous condensation of him who is God over all, blessed forever, stooping as he did for our sake. We've seen Jesus, yes, go through emotional pain. We've seen him endure spiritual pain. We've seen him stagger at the horror of the cup of wrath. Now here he endures the physical pain of beating and humiliation and human mockery. See how low he'd go for you to be your substitute. Do you? John Calvin said this further is further proof of his affection for we sinners, saying, Here is brightly displayed in the inconceivable mercy of God towards us in bringing his only begotten Son so low on our account. This is also a proof which Christ gave us of his astounding love towards us, that there was no humiliation to which he refused to submit for our salvation. Have you ever been mocked before? I bet you have in some way or another, right? Whether it be in the form of a friend jesting over some mistake you made or the evil mockery of someone wishing to put you down. What sort of feeling arose within you? Anger? Hatred? Scorn? You wanted to say something back. And maybe you did. That, that, that might take up your own cause. Sometimes, yes, words wound in a way that physical blows do not. What if somebody spat in your face? How would you feel to such vile and disrespectful treatment? How would you respond? How did Jesus respond? Now here's the first part. There's going to be a lot of irony for the rest of this thing, okay? Here's the first part of the thick irony present here. Jesus said nothing just like he was prophesied. Jesus was beaten and treated cruelly, just as Scripture said that he would be. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Here's some more irony. Further irony is the soldiers mock Jesus as a phony prophet, yet readers of Luke need only scan the last chapter to see he prophesied many things that came true hours before. The scene right before it is Peter denying the Lord, which Jesus said he would do with such accuracy and such precision, even down to the rooster crowing. Judas betrayed him, just as Jesus said he would. And here's perhaps the greatest irony of all. The soldiers mocking Jesus and treating him shamefully is them fulfilling a prophecy he gave earlier in Luke. Luke 18, 33. Jesus talking, For the Son of Man will be handed over and he will be mocked and insulted and spit upon, and they will flog him, and they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. The soldiers' mockery proves that Jesus is a prophet. 
and they have no clue. They blaspheme him, says Luke in verse 65, with their mocking. What they are doing, says Luke, is blasphemy. To, to mock Jesus and say that he is not God's anointed king is to blaspheme God. See, Luke is telling us that they're not mocking a mere man. This is just some guy that they beat up and spit on and make fun of. That's not blasphemy. It's only blasphemy if it's toward God. And so it is. Now again, we've said many times over the last, maybe you're sick of me saying it, many times over the last few weeks, and I'm going to keep saying it though, okay? We must not, we, we must come to these texts with fear and trembling. For, for while we see this happening to the Lord and we're repulsed by the action of these wicked men, we must see our proper place in this story. For, for you and I, we read this account, we watch these dramatized things on film, and we, we put ourselves alongside Jesus. But we empathize with him, we feel for him, and in some sense we should. But in this scene, we must come to the humbling conclusion that we're more like the mockers of the Lord than we might care to admit. We mock him when we won't give him his due as king. We mock him when our worship is half-hearted or conditional. We mock him when we give him second place. We mock him when we give him the leftover of our lives. We mock him when we try to save ourselves. Now, don't misunderstand what I am saying. It's no mocking of the Lord when we wrestle with doubts or struggle. To struggle is no mocking. It is a lack of a struggle that is the problem. It is a mocking of the Lord when we willfully disobey and don't submit to him as king. If we would take him as savior, but not as king. If we would soften his demands to make ourselves a respectable, easy Christianity, we are functionally rejecting his rule. When we be the primary authority and priority of our lives, this is to question whether Jesus is truly God's son and king, deserving of full allegiance and submission. Now, I was thinking about this morning. It's always dangerous to do extemporaneous stuff. But this morning, I was walking out of the house, and Isla said bye to me, and there was a bird chirping outside. Very annoying, okay? And she said, what is that? I said, it's a bird. So why is it making that sound? And I half jokingly said, maybe it's giving glory to God. And I said, you know, and they're all half asleep, you know? Uh, and I'm like, you know, in all of creation, everything obeys its Lord and sings his praises except for men. We are the only ones who mock the king of glory. Am I wrong? Okay, that wasn't so bad. But now on top of this, as we have observed, it, it is for our sins that he endured these things. Now, our disobedience, our hate, our unforgiveness, our selfishness, our lust, our anger, our self-aggrandizement were the cause of his being cruelly treated, mocked, beaten, and spat upon. You look at your worship guide. Are we not going to sing here in a bit, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed. I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Am I not, because of my sin and rebellion, not one of the mockers? Do I not cast off his rulership? 
Do I not put myself on his throne? Do I not pick and choose when to obey? Do I not chase ease and comfort over a cross-bearing life of a disciple? You know, one of, one of the 17th century Dutch, art, Dutch artist Rembrandt's most famous painting, you can look it up later, is called The Raising of the Cross. And it depicts one where, of course, the crucified Lord is on the cross and it's being lifted up into its vertical position. Now, you look at the painting and your eyes, of course, go directly to Jesus because, you know, he's at the center of the, the portrait and the, the painter made, made Jesus in light, right, so that you have to look at him. But now, as you scan the painting, and you look at the various people in there, there's some guy who just sticks out. Like, he looks like he's out of place. He's wearing a a different garb than everyone else, almost like he's a time traveler. Well, that person's Rembrandt. The, The man who painted the painting put himself into the scene, and he's staring straight at us if you look at the painting. But actually, it's said that he's not looking at us, he's looking at himself. Because he's claiming guilt for Jesus' death as if he were there when it happened. Observing the cross being hoisted up. He looks back at himself from the painting and says, see what your sin has done. But perhaps Rembrandt also realized this startling truth. While we all at one time or another, are blasphemers and mockers of the king of glory, he offers forgiveness to blasphemers and mockers. This is the paradox of the suffering of the Lord. He did it all because of us. He did it all for us. Because of his sufferings, forgiveness is offered to repentant blasphemers. The sole shocking truth is that Jesus can forgive Even people who spit on him and who have asked him if he really is the son of God. Do you see the love of Christ for you, my friend? And when you do, can you respond in any other way but loving him and living for him in return? Said Spurgeon again in a way only he could, but this love of Jesus is beyond all manner and measure of which we can have any conception If I were to take all of your love to him and heap it up like a vast mountain, if I were to gather all the members of the one church of Christ on earth and bid them empty their hearts and then fetched out of heaven the myriads of redeemed and perfected spirits before the throne and they all added their hearts love, and if I could collect all the love that uh, ever has been, that ever shall be throughout eternity in all saints, all of that would be but as a drop of a bucket compared with the boundless, fathomless love of Christ to us that brought him down so low as to be the object of scorn and derision of these wicked men for our sake. So beloved, from this sad scene, let us learn how greatly Jesus loved us and let each one of us in return love him with all of our heart. Now, Luke then proceeds to take us to the kangaroo courtroom with Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin with this council made up of these blue blood religious leaders of the day. They say to Jesus, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Again, the basic issue is Jesus' identity. Who is this Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Or is he just some upstart teacher upsetting the apple cart? They want to know. Actually, they don't. (laughs) They don't really want to know. And Jesus knows that they don't want to know, which is why he replies the way he does in verses 67 and 68. Jesus says, in effect, it doesn't matter what I say, because 
you will not believe. Essentially, it's useless to answer because they have their minds made up. There's nothing to add. So what is there to discuss is what Jesus is saying. They don't want to give him a fair hearing. This is a joke of a trial. All they want is him to give them something they could use in order for him to be killed. Now, we said last week, throughout the whole process, Jesus is the one in complete control. If you looked on this scene from the outside and the one before it in the garden, you'd assume chaos. You'd assume that the religious authorities are in charge, but they aren't. They ask him if he's the Messiah in order to entrap him. But he knows what they're doing. He knows their heart. He knows their motives. And he's pointing to the injustice of it all. He says, it doesn't matter what I say. You've made up your mind. And if I had a question for you, what? You wouldn't answer. So they want Jesus to give them something to use to take to the Roman authorities to have him killed because they couldn't pass death sentences themselves. Rome had to do it. But you know, here's the wild thing about what's going on here. Jesus will give them exactly what they want. They're they're too dumb to do it themselves, so he does it for them. And why? Because he came to die. And it will happen on his time and in his way. What Jesus replies in verse 69 is, in effect, the cause of his crucifixion. And he knows it, which is why he says it. Do you see? Because look, the religious leaders ask him if he's the Messiah, hoping to catch him in some claim they could take to Rome. It's not a crime. It's not a crime to claim to be the Messiah. Anyone could claim that. It wasn't illegal. And Rome could not have cared less if they came and said, this guy claims to be the Christ. So even if Jesus had said yes to their first question, that that wouldn't have been enough. So what does he do? He gives them enough to to, to cause, uh, to take to the Roman authorities to bring a death sentence. So Jesus says, from now on, Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is something they never expected. He combines, you can write these down for later, okay? He combines two Old Testament offices, the return of the Son of Man in glory from Daniel 7 and the royal Messiah sitting at God's right hand in Psalm 110. He's claiming something unique, power as God's Christ and as one who bears the authority from now on as judge anointed by God with the full of heaven behind him. So here's more irony. Though Jesus is before the council as an arrested man, it is he who will sit at God's side. He, not the council, will be the judge. Do you guys see the irony? Listen to what I'm going to say. The judge is being judged. The judge is allowing himself to be judged. See, they ask, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, well, I'll be seated at God's right hand shortly. I'll be ruling right next to him. So I'm the Christ and more. But you will have to wait to see me rule, for I will be your judge. That's what he's saying. You, you guys like irony. Here's some more. The unjust trial of Jesus, the anger of the religious leaders at Jesus' claim, which lead to him, will lead to him sit in judgment seat of the universe. The unjust trial, that, that death, that crucifixion will be the means by which he grasps the throne of the universe. The Messiah's rule, says Jesus, starts in earnest after his vindication from his father's side in heaven. 
Jesus' purposeful humiliation continues in that he, the judge, has come to allow himself to be judged by men. The guilty turn and accuse the innocent. We who should be on trial, we the guilty, stand and accuse the judge. We shouldn't be on trial, we claim. It is God who must be tried. So is man's sinful hubris. Jesus is taking on the sin of the world in order to save those who have sin. And what is sin? Sin is substituting ourselves for God. What is salvation? God substituting himself for us. He should be in the judgment seat. We should be in the dock. We should be in the chains, in the defendant's chair, with no defense to make standing before his judgment. Jesus is on trial, but he's the judge. Have you heard of love like this? Have you heard of grace like this? We are like the religious leaders in that we try to put God on trial all the time. Isn't that true? Every time we grumble or cry out that things aren't fair, or we have some complaint complaint about the way the world is going. We're putting God on trial. We're the guilty. But we try to put God on trial all the time. And here we see God condescending to be on trial so that we, the guilty, can go free. You guys see? You know, Edmund Clowney wrote an article many years ago called God on Trial, and he starts like this. He says, who's to blame? Stand silently in the crypt of Jerusalem's shrine of the hand of the name. A single flame pierces the darkness. Inscribed in the marble floor are dreadful names. Belsen, Daku, Auschwitz, names and numbers commemorating millions who died in Nazi concentration camps. Who is to blame, he asks. And then he mentions this play that was written after World War II called The Sign of Jonah. And in light of all the atrocities of World War II, this playwright does what the people in Germany were doing, right? Which is ask, who's to blame for all this? Who's to blame for all these atrocities that happened? And of course, guess what? No one's to blame. No one's to blame. No one wants to take responsibility. A stormtrooper merely followed orders. An industrialist merely kept up production. A citizen simply did not become involved. Yet in defending their own innocence, each of the accused became the accuser. All are guilty. Some are guilty by words, others by silence, some by what they did, others by what they did not do. And suddenly, the accused accusers all take up another cry, says the play. We are to blame, yes, but we are not the most to blame. The real blame belongs much higher. God is to blame. God must go on trial. Later in the play, God is accused found guilty, sentenced by the people to become a human being, a wonder on earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself shall die and lose a son, suffer the agonies of fatherhood, and when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. Adds Clowney, we rebels cry out in rage. We put God on trial, but God in his perfect righteousness has accepted even greater punishment than we in our blasphemous judgment ever dare dreamed. Do you see what Jesus actually did that? You know, there's another place in the Bible where God is voluntarily put on trial. Did you know that? In Exodus 17, 
the Israelites are fresh off God's rescuing them from Egypt and Egyptian slavery, and, and they're nearly immediately, you guys remember when we went through Exodus? Nearly immediately they're grumbling. Did you bring us out here to die of thirst in the wilderness, they asked? And these ungrateful grumblers, they complain against God who has been their rescuer with, with no contribution from them. You know, so what does God do? How does he respond? So God sets up a courtroom situation, says Clowney. The people have demanded a hearing, a hearing they will have. Moses leads the elder before the assembled congregation to serve as judges, and Moses takes in his hand the rod, the symbol of judicial authority. Now, we look at the story, and God have just, he could have just taken them out, right? And given a fresh start. He could rebuke them, he could have sent them back to Egypt, but instead he stands before them, in a sense, on the rock, and he instructs Moses to strike it. And nowhere else in the Old Testament does God say he will come and stand before man. Always is the other way around. But here God declares that he will stand trial and the people watch to see the judge's rod descend upon the Lord. And here he is once more who stand trial for the guilt of people. And again, if we're honest, you know, we look at Exodus 17, we should see ourselves in the Israelites grumbling. You ever grumble? Ungrateful. You ever ungrateful? Entitled, hard-hearted. And, and if we're being honest, we would appear in the high priest's house where the judge is on trial, and we would be standing with the religious leaders calling Jesus to prove himself to us, to answer to us for all of the world's ills, for all the raw deals we think we've been dealt. And we'd think of our sin, and we'd say, yeah, but... And yet, Jesus stands, and he goes to trial for us even still, in our place, for our wickedness. David Garland, he, you know, he argues a similar way that Clowney, that he, he, we even look at, into the trial of Jesus, and we try to make excuses for the people involved. You know, Judas isn't truly guilty. We talked about this last week. Well, why, why the religious leaders, they're not guilty because, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. They just did what they thought was right or whatever, right? But we even try to whitewash Pilate, who was cruel, wicked man. This is what Garland says. He says, I find it interesting in examining scholarly treaties and hearing sermons that we try to get different ones of these perpetrators off the hook. I'm convinced that such attempts to excuse the original miscreants are ultimately attempts to excuse ourselves. Nobody's guilty. It was all God's plan. So that leaves only God to take responsibility. Whoever is conscious of his own negligence and obedience of his own failure to love, of the lethargy of his own heart in the midst of the demands of everyday life, cannot escape from responsibility before God for Jesus' death by fixing blame upon some other person. He said, when we read this account, we must see how easily we can become a crafty high priest, a devious Judas, a lying false witness, a cowardly Peter, a wishy-washy governor, a mindless member of a hate-filled crowd, a coarse soldier, and an absent disciple hidden for fear, then we realize that it is we who are on trial before Jesus and not vice versa. Don't you see? But, but don't you also see that Jesus took on the trial in order to die for those who would stand and accuse 
if only they'd see him for who he is and repent and bend knee. The grace and mercy of Christ is so deep that he stands ready to forgive even the vilest of sinners if they would see him for who he is, come to him and repent. See, it's not enough. It's not enough to just see him for who he is. The religious leaders, they see him for who he is and they perish. We must see him and respond rightly. What the religious leaders will come to realize And what we need to realize too is that although Jesus allows himself to be tried by men, he will be vindicated. And he will ultimately be the judge. He is one with power and authority. And you and I, my friend, have finite time on this earth to acknowledge his rule, lest we perish in the end. This is a choice that we all have to make. We could bend knee in this life and live, or we could bend knee in the next life and it will be too late. Jesus is telling them that they want a Messiah who will rule, and he will, but not in the way they think. And they will see him rule, but it will have to wait. And at that point, they will have no choice but to acknowledge him. So here's the brass tacks, okay? Either the high priest is correct and Jesus is a deluded blasphemer. Or Jesus is correct, and the high priest is a deluded blasphemer. And isn't that the choice facing all of us today? Listen, okay. Is Jesus the anointed son of man who is sitting at the right hand of the Father and will come to live, judge the living and the dead, or isn't he? Is he God in flesh or not? Did Jesus die a humiliating death in the place of rebellious sinners so that forgiveness and reconciliation might be given to repent or not? It's that simple. We must not, as our society tends to do, come with any idea of Jesus besides either saying he's a blasphemer or he is who he said he is. And if we answer with the latter, we could never be the same again. How could we? How could we? How could we live the same if Jesus is the wrath-absorbing Son of God in power? That changes everything, doesn't it? You know, during World War II, our friend C.S. Lewis, he'd frequently visit these armies, uh, these airmen in in Royal Air Force, and he'd give these lectures, and he'd teach teach in these chaplain classes. And you know what he found? He found that the belief that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God, was very prevalent among those that he spoke to. So, you know, he gave these series of radio lectures, which later became the book Mere Christianity. And he said this. He addressed this argument on the radio. He said, I'm trying to prevent... Anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman. 
You, you can shut him up for a fool, he said. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems obvious, he says, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it might seem, I have to accept the fact that he was and is God. Jesus was claiming something no one else had. Not even those who came and claimed to be these fake messiahs, which happened more often than you think. He was claiming equality with God. And he was assuring his captors that they would eventually see that this is true. He was promising that soon enough, the higher court would overturn the decision of the lower one. See, they hear, they hear that Jesus is making a unique claim of a highly exalted status, and they're right. So they ask him, do you see it? You are, this is, this is literally how it's phrased. You are the son of God? What does Jesus say? It's sort of like a non-answer that's an answer, right? You say that I am. But you know, if you look at Mark's gospel, it's even stronger. The high priest asks, the high priest asks are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? All Jesus says is, I am. That's nothing short of a divine claim, which is why Mark tells us the high priest tore his clothes in outrage. So they say, what further testimony do we need? There's no mistaking Jesus' unique claims. They have what they think is enough to convict and kill him. Daryl Box says the leadership cannot convict Jesus without the aid of the teacher himself. He chooses to go to the cross by his own words, words that bring his death, even though they are true. In this situation, the truth is deadly because it is not properly perceived. But as I said, they don't have the power to kill Jesus themselves, so they must appeal to their occupiers, the Roman government. This takes us from one kangaroo court to another at the beginning of chapter 23. Now we are at Pilate's quarters in Jerusalem where he's staying for Passover. So now, the religious leaders believed to have cause for Jesus' execution, they bring him to Pilate, and they list three accusations. Do you see them? Don't miss it. They're crafty politicians who try to tap sensitive political nerves and elicit maximum reaction from Pilate. This is what they say. This one, which is itself derogatory, this one is misleading the nation. He tells people not to pay taxes, and he's claiming to be a king, a rival to Caesar. Now, we know they are liars and scoundrels, yes? The first claim is that he disturbs the peace, something they've never seen him do. But if he's threatening a revolution, they know Pilate would want to put that down, you see? The second claim, he they, they say he tells people not to pay taxes to Caesar. We know that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. But if they get Pilate to believe it, that it'll affect the finances of Rome, they'll have what they need. The third charge is the most important one, for such claims of human kingship were categorically anti-imperial and grounds for high treason and thus death. But guess what? See this third claim? It's true. Is it not? He is the king. He is the Christ. But not in a way that they think. See, this is the only one, do you notice, Pilate has any interest in. Because he asks in verse 3, are you the king of the Jews? Now I want you to Mark up your scripture journal or Bible. The word you is emphatic. Are you the king of the Jews? You? 
Do you guys know why Pilate's asking this? Can you picture the scene? Jesus stands there, beaten, bloodied, hands tied, being led around by these religious leaders. His clothes are probably torn. He hasn't slept in at least a day. The sweat from the garden still staining his clothes. And the religious leaders are pointing at him saying, he's a king, Pilate. So Pilate's looking at this beaten, dirty, homeless man. He says, you are the king of the Jews? Because what king looks like that? Don't kings have armies and swords? Find clothes and manservants who show themselves in power and control. Worldly kings do. But what Jesus tells Pilate in John's gospel, what we said last week is true. My kingdom is what? Not of this world. Listen to the scandal. The king of glory. The, the one who there isn't a square inch in all of creation that isn't his. purposefully was made low. He grabs the cross as, it's, as if it's a scepter. He stands as one condemned even though he has no cause of condemnation. He'd be bloody mess while he still maintains all control because it was his plan all along to be a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom that is otherworldly and makes little sense in hearts in darkness set on the ways of this earth alone. This is why Pilate, he said, I see no guilt in him because he's looking at him. And he concludes that Jesus is a harmless enthusiast, not a threat. What kind of king allows himself to be treated this way? And Why? Now, Luke wants us to be clear. Jesus does not die a guilty man, but as an innocent lamb at the altar of political expediency, and he goes of his own accord. Think about it. Think about it. If Jesus simply wanted a throne, he could have it, right? That'd be easy. If if Jesus wanted glory for himself, he already had it. If Jesus wanted people to be merely impressed by his power and might, no sweat. If Jesus wanted anything for himself, he could have had it for he possesses all things. If Jesus wanted a kingdom like the one we live in, like the ones around the world, like the ones we see through the ages, no problem. If he wanted mere submission from creatures as creator, all he had to do was show up as a consuming, terrifying fire and demand it. But that's not how he came to claim his kingdom, was it? It's not what he did to take his rightful place on the throne. And he didn't do any of that for himself because he came to die because the only way for rebellious sinners to be brought near was for God in the flesh to die in their place. What love is this? A kingdom, he'll have one, but not in the way you think. A throne, he'll get it, but it's shaped like a cross. A band of followers, yeah, but they'll flee at the first sign of trouble, betray and deny him. Will he act as judge? Yeah, but first he'll allow himself to be judged, though he is innocent. Betrayed, abandoned, denied, alone, bloodied, beaten, spit, drying on his brow, and he asks, you are the king? I am, he says. The world is filled with people who reject his claim and so mock him. Yes? What about you? Who do you say he is? 
that here's part one of his trial. Act as a juror. What's the verdict? Is he who he says he is or not? If he's who he says he is, and you've settled this in your heart, you must worship him. You must submit to him. You must obey him. You must love him. You must live for him. Are you? Some of you have merely mentally assented to the set of facts, but your life shows that you haven't settled it in your heart. Is Jesus king or not? Do you see what he did to get to you? The humiliation, the scorn, the hatred, the suffering for you? And your life would look the same as before? And you won't submit to him? You'd give him casual, heartless worship? You put him on the peripheries of your life? He'd be your savior and not your king? Does that make any sense in light of who he is, in light of what he has done to get to you? You know, the late Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, I'm sure I'm going to get his name wrong, Jean-Marie Lustiguet, Lustiguet, Lustiguet something, used to tell the story, all the time he'd tell the story. Three boys in Paris, they decided, they were walking by the cathedral, and they decided they'd have a bit of fun at the expense of the local priest, Okay. They want to play a trick on him. So two of the boys dared the third one to go to the priest who was hearing confession and go into the confessional and, you know, confessing all kinds of wild and heinous sins, okay? Well, the priest was no fool, and he knew exactly what was going on. And so he said to the boy in the confession, to every confession is a penance. Here is yours. I want you to walk to the east end of the church. There is a large statue of Jesus on the cross, and I want you to look at Jesus and say three times, I know you died for me, but I don't care. The boy still thought it was funny and part of the game. So off he went to the east end of the church. So he knelt at the statue portraying the crucified Lord, and he began, you did all that for me, and I don't care. Then he said it a second time, you did all that for me, and I don't care. And then a third time, you did that all for me, and I, and he trailed off. He couldn't say it for the third time, and he broke down, and he began to weep. As he looked at this depiction of the suffering Christ, he broke under his sin, and he left the church a changed person. And the reason I know that story, the archbishop would conclude, is that I was the young man. And he spent the rest of his life following, serving the Jesus who had come to the place of brokenness, of failures, of lies, that Jesus who had loved him to the end. Now we are invited to peer into the Garden of Gethsemane and see the Lord's agony and his betrayal, to peer into the high priest's house and see him denied, to see him mocked, spat upon, and beaten, told to prophesy who hit him, to peer into Pilate's quarters where he is lied about and scorned, where he is the judge being judged. We must look and consider, you did all of that for me and I. How will you finish that sentence? How will you fill in 
the blank? How will you respond? Who is Jesus? Who is he to you? There's no more important question than this, is there? So see him and say, you did all that for me and I. Then fill in the blank with giving him your whole life.